Lesson 2. How to Remake Our Moods for Mastery We are the soul makers and absolute controllers of our own predominant moods. If we would remake our lives, we have only to remake our predominant moods. This, once you recognize its necessity, is a simple thing to do. So simple, it seems unbelievable, yet so powerful, it will affect your life for the better from the moment you try it. We are so constructed that we rid the subconscious of anything we desire to be free of simply by reversing the process that put it there, vis-a-vis by refusing to harbor and dwell upon further thoughts concerning it. The old mood then dies for lack of cultivation. Another wonderful fact is that whereas we build harmful attitudes but slowly, we can build harmonious ones with incredible rapidity. This is due to the fact that when we build downward, we are opposing all the constructive forces of nature, whereas we ally ourselves with all our God-given powers the moment we start building upward. This is proven most graphically in two aspects, that of habits and diseases. It requires a long time to build a disease into your system, sometimes years of neglect and abuse. But with conditions just right in the subconscious mind of the patient, he can be, and in thousands of cases has been, cured of that disease instantly. Years or months usually go into the formation of an undesirable habit. But if we apply the law fully and completely, it leaves us in an hour, never to return unless we deliberately call it back. Another illustration showing why it is easier to go up than down, easier to succeed than fail, is to be found in any automobile engine. When it is grinding along in second gear, it burns up more fuel, becomes much more heated, and yet makes slower progress than when in first. Now, we are all intended to be in high all the time. Like the auto engine, we are built for it. And when we harbor wrong attitudes, we are in low. True, we move along in whatever direction we are headed, but all the good in us cries out against it. Since there is much more of this spiritual element in us than we realize, and since it is impossible to kill it, we can never hurt our lives quite as quickly or completely as we can help and improve them. Every time we lift our heads or hearts, we are met instantly by some shining power greater than ourselves. The making of a good resolution, how it strengthens and inspires us. And the making of a bad one, the threat to get even, for instance. Ever notice how it affects your face muscles, your appetite, your ability to concentrate on worthwhile things? The turning toward the right is all that's needed just at first. Bear in mind that there is no such thing as standing still. You are always moving. You are either weaker than you were yesterday or stronger, more confident or more afraid. And what you are letting yourself feel today will affect you tomorrow. If persisted in, it will build events for the coming years. This is an eternal, immutable, inexorable law. Therefore, if you would change your future, change your mind, 
especially the content of your great subconscious mind. This is much easier to do than you may suppose. You do it simply by watching your reactions and gently, deliberately, persistently giving back to the events of life the kind of reaction you want to build your future. It is never what happens to you that counts, but how you take what happens to you. Four, strange as it may seem, it is never the events of your life, but the way you take them, which creates the moods that in the final analysis make your life. Once the mood has set, it goes ahead of its own accord and builds out into your life the kinds of things that correspond to it. Therefore, to change your life for the better, it is absolutely essential that you change your predominant moods for the better. To do this, it is not necessary to struggle or make resolutions that would tax your strength. It is not necessary to try to do everything in a minute. Rome was not built in a day, and the same is true of anything else worthwhile. You have all your life before you in which to make these improvements and all the power available for doing them. Don't be in a hurry and don't be afraid. Don't give yourself a great deal to do. Start easy and add more as your strength grows. It will grow with amazing swiftness. You will not have long to wait. Meanwhile, you must not be impatient, but you must be persistent. There is an old legend about a boy who had a pet calf. He wanted to develop great lifting power, so he lifted his calf several times each day. He did not skip a single day. And when the calf was full grown and weighed a thousand pounds, he could lift it without a quiver. It is persistence, not intense effort, that plants and replants your subconscious, just the gentle dropping of the thought seeds into the soil. You will recognize this if you will recall how your present general attitudes were developed. Do you want me to remind you, dear troubled one, just how they did grow? Come with me back over your yesterdays. It will be a very interesting trip and will reveal some things you have never suspected. First, I want you to note that the attitudes which today predominate in the back of your mind regarding yourself did not grow up suddenly. They came into being gradually, crystallizing, getting set as time went on. You are quite surprised when you catch occasional, unexpected glimpses of yourself to note the changes that have taken place in you since you looked in last. These changes, for better or for worse, are going on every moment within us, as definitely and uninterruptedly as the physical growth of a child. We do not notice it unless we make a special effort to do so, any more than we note the growth of our own children. But a friend who has been absent only a little while is struck by the change. Everything about us tells the history of our feelings and our self-estimate, and others read it whether we can do so or not. The bulletins there are in full view even when we least realize it. What puts them there? Always and forever, one tendency and one alone. The way we have been taking things. Not the events, remember, but the reactions we have been giving to events since they last saw us. 
In this manner, we slowly but surely build up moods that will take us to the heights, physically, financially, socially, and personally. Those that will take us to the depths or those that land us somewhere between. If your own moods are of the highest, purest, most constructive, you will go high. If they are of the lowest, basest, most destructive, you will sink very low. If they are so-so, not very bad or very good, just medium, so will your life be. To see just what I mean, ask yourself this question. When unpleasant things happen to me, how have I reacted to them? Have I rebounded mentally and emotionally in a spirit of challenge, feeling way down inside, this cannot defeat me? Or have I developed the habit of falling flat before little troubles, making mountains out of molehills, of fretting and stewing and feeling crushed? Or have I done neither, but just muddled through, feeling sort of numb and unaffected? If you will look back over the years, you will see that the massed conditions of your life today correspond with amazing exactness to the majority of these subconscious reactions. Moreover, in the years to come, when you see a man or woman who has gained wealth, station, honors, friends, or power, you will not need to put the old question, how did he do it? What is true of you is true of each and every human being in the world. The plan always precedes production. The dream precedes the doing. Feelings precede the facts. This is the greatest discovery of modern human science. When you see such a one, you know that this person acquired the habit I am showing you how to acquire, of giving back to the events of life as they came and went regardless of what they were, a harmonious instead of a harmful reaction. Every successful person has met with opposition, hard luck, failure, disillusionment. If you read biography, you will see that more than average difficulties have lined every path to power. But instead of giving in, as the average person does, those destined for success seem literally to sharpen their weapons upon the rough edge of adversity. If you would rise, if you would attain success, fame, love, or any other thing, you must give a new set of orders to your subconscious mind by not yielding inwardly when trouble comes. What people do when trouble comes is important, of course, but what they feel is far more important because these feelings added together plant and replant the subconscious mind while our overt acts often affect only the surface. To make clear to you what takes place in your inner world and how your habitual reactions color the events of your life, a certain homely illustration is the best one I have found. Have you ever watched on a Monday morning while someone blued the family wash? If so, you have noticed how she first blued the tub of water by dipping the little package of bluing balls into it till the right color was obtained. Your subconscious mind is like that tub full of water. Every time an event of importance comes to you, life is handing you what some people slangily call a package. But whether this event, be it pleasant or unpleasant, brightens or darkens your subconscious content, 
does not depend upon the event itself, for no event can reach your subconscious mind. It depends entirely upon your reaction to that event. In other words, upon the way you take it, for this aftermath always reaches your subconscious. When you take any experience constructively, you are bigger, better, and stronger than you were before it came, no matter how destructive the experience itself may have been. When you do this, you have brightened the color of the subconscious content just to that extent, and to that extent, it will eventually brighten the external garments of your life. But when you give in to an unhappy experience, when you brood over it, pity yourself, or nurse destructive feelings, you are deliberately taking hold of this unhappy experience, turning around and dipping it into your subconscious content and thereby hurting yourself in the only place where it counts. But when unhappy experiences come to me, how can I be happy over them, you ask? You cannot be happy over them, of course, and it is not necessary that you should. Momentary happiness or unhappiness is not what we are talking about, for it is unimportant. We are talking in this course about your life's happiness as a whole. The most important question, the one significant issue in every person's life. Whether this one biggest thing shall come to you depends on how you treat the little ones, the petty trials, tribulations, and disappointments. This was illustrated in the famous answer Michelangelo made to a careless young man. This young friend, a fellow artist, whose name, for obvious reasons, is not known, returned from a holiday and called on Michelangelo at his studio. He was disappointed to find the great sculptor working on a statue that was practically finished when he left six weeks before. So far as I can see, complained the young man, you've accomplished nothing while I've been away. You are quite wrong, answered Michelangelo, and he pointed out this and that little improvement. The remodeling of a finger here, a curve there, delicate retouchings everywhere. But these are only trifles, said the young man. Yes, answered the great one, they are trifles, but trifles make perfection, and perfection is no trifle. Whether you are building for a lasting health, happiness, and success, or their opposites, does not hinge upon the raw material life's experiences give you to work with. This is surprisingly similar in all cases. It depends upon whether you are taking things with courage or with cowardice, with the I give in attitude, or the attitude which says, a thing like this shall not lick me. If you will take this latter attitude, happiness and all other things shall be added unto you. For ultimately, everything gives way before it. It is irresistible. It is in accordance with God-made laws, and God-made laws, like man-made ones, are no respecters of persons. No matter how sad or discouraged or heartbroken you may be, no matter how many times you have failed in what you attempted, no matter how cruel or disappointing life has been to you up to now, nothing on earth can keep you from what you desire if you will start today and react constructively to the experiences that come to you. Remember, your everyday life, your environment, the actualities are, after all, only the garments worn by your soul. 
If you really want those of tomorrow to be bright and beautiful, simply see to it that you meet every event constructively. Think of yourself as a little house whose happiness and achievements depend upon workings of the machinery down in the subconscious basement. Your conscious mind may be likened to the front parlor. Every event or experience of your life enters that front parlor through the doors of your five senses. Thus do you become aware of anything that happens to you. Thus, only can you have an experience. These events of life come into the parlor of your conscious thinking mind without even knocking. Some are good and some are bad, some pleasant, some unpleasant, but it doesn't matter in the long run which they are because they cannot affect you save in the form in which they reach your subconscious basement, and that is entirely up to you. Every event, experience, and happening of your life finds its way down into your subconscious basement as soon as it leaves the conscious parlor, which occurs as soon as a more pressing event or experience is thrust upon you from the outside world. For instance, each event of yesterday, engrossing as it may have been at the time, gave way to subsequent events and is now only a memory, so far as your conscious mind is concerned. But it is a living force in your subconscious. Whether it is a helpful or harmful force depends on the way you let it affect you at the time. In other words, the events of yesterday went down the back stairs of your house and on into your subconscious basement, not in their original form, but as little ghosts of construction or destruction. But no matter how destructive one of these experiences may have been, no matter how it's a Appearance terrorized you when it entered your consciousness, it went into your subconscious as a helpful worker if you faced it constructively. Everything you contact in life, everything you read, every person you meet, every event, must pass through your own consciousness down into your subconscious and must be transmuted there before it can be brought out into your life. It comes to you as raw material and must be made up by you before you can use it. It is gold, coming to your mint as raw bullion, to be minted and stamped with your own dye before being used in the world of affairs. The events that come to you are putty in your hands. You can make of them anything you will. When you have done so, they become living things, working for or against you, good or bad fairies according to the shape you give them. Always bear in mind that what this shape shall be depends upon the molds you are building day by day in your own subconscious mind. When you realize that not one thing that ever happened to you could have hurt you had you applied this great principle and that nothing in the future can hurt you except as you use it against yourself, you can rebuild your entire outlook. Here are the specific steps which will if adhered to, eventually remake your life. Rule one, whenever an unhappy experience comes into your front parlor, do not let it do all the talking. Make it see you are the master there. Say to it, just as though it were another person, you are not a very pleasant thing now, but I can turn you into one of the best little workers I've got and I am going to do it. 
Form the habit of saying this from the instant an unpleasant thing begins to happen and before deciding on any kind of action. It will steady and sustain you till you can see what to do. But don't stop there. Rule two, then say to yourself, this experience has good in it for me somewhere. And though I do not see it just now, I shall look till I find that good and put it to active use in my life. Then search till you find it. You will usually discover more than one. In my own life, every unpleasant experience has paid for itself many times over, and the worst ones, most of all. In order that you may recognize the truth of this reassurance while giving it to yourself, I ask that you do not wait till some calamity descends upon you before testing it, but glance backward now and see how true it has been of the disappointments you have had in the past. You can see clearly and perhaps for the first time the lesson each had for you, a lesson you could have been using all this time had you only allowed yourself to find it. If you will do this, strength will come to you out of every experience. Breadth and wisdom and character will develop within you, and everything in your life will enlarge to fit it. Rule three, regardless of how disastrous any event seems to be, no matter how many terrible results you believe it is bound to bring you, do not dwell upon these aspects. They will come to you in the form of pictures, little moving pictures, in which you are the chief actor and in which you see yourself hurt, wrecked, or even killed by this event. If you let them, they will unwind before your mind's eye, scene after scene, and start in all over again every time the fade-out comes, adding new and more awful possibilities till you have a ten-reel tragedy revolving constantly in your mind. This will not only keep you unhappy, but it will certainly prevent your finding the lesson in that experience. It will do three more things if persisted in. It will eventually make you ill physically. It will undermine your mentality. And because our actions follow our thoughts, it will cause you to act in accordance with your fears and thus bring some of them to pass. Rule four. Start out each day determined to go through with the minimum of friction, with the least possible wear and tear on your own organism. Decide that nothing shall upset or frighten you, that no matter what comes, you will finish today without giving way to destructive moods. Though you may feel certain you cannot go on forever upholding this high standard, even if you are sure you will have to give way by tomorrow, don't bother about that. Center your mind on this one day and deliberately refrain from heaping unnecessary burdens upon your shoulders. Forever never comes. No, nor tomorrow. So take care of today and eternity will take care of itself. But you will not have to wait for eternity to vindicate your new consciousness. By tomorrow, you will see that it was better to postpone the destructive mood or action for its significance will then be obvious. Soon, you will have formed the habit of reacting constructively, and your whole life will change accordingly. It is this tendency to live yesterday and tomorrow instead of today that causes most of our destructive moods. Today can always be managed. It is only when we pile the memories of past tragedies 
and the visualizations of future ones upon our backs that we break down. And this is precisely the type of person who could so easily make his life happy and successful. Such a one has imagination, the rarest mental power there is. Only he turns it against himself instead of making it work for him. People who are lacking in imagination can never rise very high nor fall very low. Imagination is like an electric current. It works in whatever direction you turn it. Whether it takes you to the depths or builds your life on the heights depends upon the way you press the button. The rules given throughout this course show you how to turn your God-given power into constructive channels instead of using them for self-destruction as we unknowingly do most of the time. Rule 5. Refuse to cross bridges till you come to them. Stop wondering whether so-and-so will keep his appointment, whether Mrs. Somebody or other will pay her bill, whether everything will work out all right in the forthcoming deal, whether other people will understand your motives, whether it will rain next Sunday and spoil the picnic, whether you will make a good showing at the club meeting, whether the children will stay well, whether they will make their grades at school, whether some loved one will return from that journey safely, etc., etc. Remember the old man who said, I've had lots of troubles in my life, but most of them never happened. If you are given to this sort of thing, step aside and have a good laugh at yourself for once. Look at yourself and see how funny you are. Don't let anyone else into the secret. Just go off by yourself frequently and say, my dear, if we'd spent half the time thinking out ways and means that we've wasted wondering and jumping at conclusions, we'd have been somewhere by now. Do this till it becomes a habit. Then every time you start borrowing trouble, that big healthy habit will step up and give you the wink. You will soon find yourself laughing at the very things which now crumple you all up. Rule six, confine yourself to the business in hand. This has two wonderfully helpful effects. First, it prevents your imagination running wild and dragging you with it. Second, it will remove the cause of one of the worst sore spots in your subconscious, the realization that you have been letting the quality of your work deteriorate. I shall have more to tell you about work in another lesson, but this is the place to tell you that, though we are seldom aware of it, one of the most prolific causes of destructive moods is the fact, consciously repressed but forever nagging at us subconsciously, that we are not doing justice to ourselves in our work. Rule seven, don't let the facts stated just above or any others cause you to waste one moment regretting the neglect of your work in the past. That is all gone. What's done is done. You can make up for it and everything else and actually profit by your mistakes if you will turn your back on every one of them and think only of the future. A great American once said, get rid of your regrets. You are what you are because of what you have suffered. Rightly understood and applied, every error can prove a blessing. Rule eight, avail yourself of suggestion, the greatest law of the subconscious mind, by keeping yourself surrounded with the little things that help you. For instance, if you are in earnest about remaking your life, 
the first thing you should do is copy rules out of this lesson and put them in a place that is conspicuous to you, but where others will not see them. I know one young woman who rebuilt her life by tacking these rules inside her clothes closet under the hook where she hung her nightdress. This compelled her to see them at least every morning and every evening when she might otherwise have been too busy to look at them. A businessman of New York City changed himself from a morose, depressed failure to a happy, courageous success by pasting these rules in plain sight inside the top drawer of his desk, a private one which he opened many times a day, but which others had no occasion to see. It is better, especially at first, for you to keep this to yourself because the law of suggestion, like every other, works both ways. In self-defense, the unambitious and uninspiring are inclined to suggest failure to you, and this greatly delays the progress of any sensitive one, whether he admits it or not. This attitude is especially characteristic of the skeptical, critical people in your immediate environment who like to think they know you better than you know yourself. Remember our one big fundamental rule. Make everything as easy for yourself as possible. Give yourself every chance. Then you cannot fail. Every business house in America has recognized the efficacy of these reminders, and many of them have profitably invested thousands of dollars in such slogans as, do it now, every knocks a boost, etc. The most famous of all such things was Albert Hubbard's Message to Garcia, a little essay so full of suggestions for workers that firms all over the world ordered copies of it for their employees. It was translated into 26 languages and over 40 million copies were sold. Suggestion is the most potent force in business as well as in personal life. If you would succeed at anything, you should avail yourself of suggestions of a constructive nature whenever possible. To be sure of enough of them, do not wait for them to happen. Make them happen. The printed or spoken word is by no means the only ways in which suggestions get into the subconscious mind. In fact, everything we see, hear, touch, taste, and smell, as well as everything we say, think, and do, suggests something to us. If not short-circuited, the suggestion goes down into the subconscious in its original form. Whether any class of suggestions gets sidetracked and kept out of the subconscious or whether they go straight into it depends on the standing orders you have given to your habit mind. All good suggestions have the right of way, the main track, as it were, and take precedence over all others as soon as you give orders to that effect. Give that order right now to your whole self, and henceforth, keep plenty of helpful reminders around you. In addition to these rules, have inspiring slogans, poems, and mottos in plain sight. They are of inestimable value. Choose those which appeal to you personally, whether anyone else likes them or not. And do not try to see any that do not appeal to you, no matter how popular they may be or how much they mean to someone else. In these matters, every soul lives alone. It knows its own needs and must make its own selections. Besides these, be sure to have in full view in your office, your bedroom, or your workroom 
anything else that uplifts you. What these are will depend entirely upon yourself and your experience. Thousands of busy men keep sweet and strong through all the struggles and vicissitudes of business by having the pictures of their wives and babies on their desks or over their workbenches. A look at her wedding ring has turned many a wife from temptation. She may have been nursing the idea that her husband no longer cares for her, but that plain gold band speaks to her of the beauty and love it once symbolized. The subconscious mind deals almost entirely in symbols, hence the power of these simple external reminders. If you are inclined to depreciate yourself, criticize or condemn yourself, here is the best suggestion of all. Keep plainly in view in your own private room or where you will run across them frequently, mementos, favors, badges, trophies, or other reminders of your victories. Whenever you are feeling down in the mouth, run over the list and see how much better you are half an hour afterward. Rule nine, avoid just as many inharmonious ideas, events, and people as you can. Your subconscious, once your conscious mind has given the order, will translate even the most unhappy experience into a helpful influence. But that is no reason for abusing it or giving it unnecessary work to do. Be good enough to save it for the main issues. It goes without saying that you will be piling rocks in your own roadway if you persist in cultivating the things, people, or conditions that hurt or humiliate you. Your subconscious can crush them into sand for the roadbed, it is true, but if you want to make the utmost speed, don't give it needless tasks to perform, nor load yourself down with excess baggage. By this I mean such things as reminders of your past failures. Forget them and let everyone else forget them. So far as possible, stay away from the people who know of them, and especially those who speak of them. If old friends or members of your family have the habit of referring to the time things went against you, of keeping green the graves of blasted hopes, gently but firmly tell them it's not the past, but the present and the future that count with you. Rule 10. Avoid so far as possible all pessimistic, cynical individuals. Recognize their condition as pathological in each case. Give each one your understanding and not your censure but don't permit them to agitate you. It is not possible in this workday world always to avoid unpleasing people, but whenever we run into them, we can remember what Marcus Aurelius recommended. He said, Begin the morning by saying to yourself, I shall meet with the busybody, the ungrateful, arrogant, deceitful, envious, unsocial. All these things happen to them by reason of their ignorance of what is good and evil. Rule 11. Stay away from political wrangles, all mobs, all quarrels, and all against-er meetings. These serve little purpose other than that of stirring up the primitive and most pugnacious instincts within us. One such experience can put you far behind in your progress. If you want to help the world, remember all the good that has come into it has come in spite of fighting, not because of it. And this applies to individuals as well as nations. Rule 12, mingle with optimistic, hopeful, inspiring people as much as possible. Seek them out. Rule 13, 
Make it a point to attend meetings, lectures, conventions, concerts, churches, etc., where the message of hope prevails. At all inspiring gatherings, you are bound to hear many things that will help you, things you can apply to your own problems that will be available for your own needs. The rest you can let alone. Even a goose knows enough to take the corn and leave the cob. Rule 14. When things go wrong in your work, say to yourself, these are merely annoyances incident to my business. To let them irritate me signifies I am not big enough for my business. Whatever your work, environment, or field of endeavor, bear in mind that there are bound to be certain difficulties inherent in it, since it is a human institution. Rule 15. If you are an employer of any kind, you are sure to meet with stupidity and inefficiency occasionally. Instead of letting these enrage you, remind yourself of another of Hubbard's maxims. If he had my brains, he'd have my job. Rule 16. If you are an employee, bear the same thing in mind. Instead of becoming blindly angry when the boss calls you down, search for the grain of truth in what he says about you and let it grow into self-improvement. Otherwise, you will be forever taking orders from others. Instead of harboring resentment, planning to get even, or feeling abused when you seem not to be appreciated, try to figure out what is wrong with you and how to command appreciation. Rule 17. On the other hand, don't think you are hopeless because you are not perfect. One of the brightest girls I ever knew was on the verge of a nervous collapse when this rule came to her attention. She had worked hard and wanted to make a 100% record. Whenever anything went wrong, when an error was found in her department, she broke down and was almost ill for days afterward. When she decided to do her best and let the rest go, her nervousness and self-consciousness disappeared. Hence, her work improved until it was practically faultless. Today, she is one of the healthiest, happiest, and most successful businesswomen of the Pacific Coast. In this connection, remember also that you can never make another human being completely, permanently happy. Perfect happiness is something no individual can give to another and which each must acquire for himself if he is ever to have it. But there are numberless men and women who are wretched all the time because someone who they feel unduly responsible for, husband, wife, child, or parent, is not supremely happy. They forget that happiness is an accomplishment each must achieve for himself. We can no more attain it for others than we could, by taking their piano lessons, make good musicians of them. Destructive moods finally begin to dominate our lives from one of the two main tendencies— too much selfishness or too much unselfishness. If all your moods center around yourself, your possessions, the way people treat you, the money you have or hope to have or are afraid you won't have, the way things are going to affect you, you belong largely to the former. But if you are so sensitive to the feelings, hopes, and rights of others that you are constantly afraid of hurting them, you belong to the latter. And what is more, you are causing the very ones you love best a good deal of needless anxiety. I know a family of 10 in which all the members keep themselves miserable, worrying over each other's difficulties. 
Each one is amply able to bear his own if he would only stick to his own. But each carries those of every other member, thus weighing himself down with the burdens often instead of one and making more trouble for himself and everyone concerned by incapacitating himself for his own affairs. No man was intended to ride through life on the back of another. We only weaken others, especially young people, when we try to relieve them of all responsibility. This is especially true when we try to relieve them of the responsibility of making themselves happy. Rule 18. Do not allow yourself to gather a long list of things you just can't stand. Such a mood is like a fly for multiplying. If you encourage yourself today in imagining there are three things you can't and won't endure, this time next year, there will be a dozen, and in five years, a hundred. Did you ever stop to think that one of the main reasons why old maids of both sexes are so unattractive is that there are so many things they simply can't bear. They won't eat this. They can't go out in this or that kind of weather. They never read this or wear that or do something else. Whenever you get an aversion and begin to raise it for a pet, you are taking a step toward fussy, fretty old maidishness. Rule 19. Stop kicking at every pinprick life sends you. If you want to respect yourself or ever make a life worthy of the name, you have got to be big. Big things don't come to petty people, but big things simply can't stay away from big people. You can size up your tendencies and see whether you are growing toward littleness or bigness, insignificance or greatness, by noting whether you ignore some of the bites or whether you hit back every time a human mosquito stings you. You may feel you are unfortunate, that no one else has quite so much to bear. But the fact is that people with big minds and big affairs have a greater number of these things happen to them than others. Their activities bring them into contact with a far larger number of people, and the envy their success creates in small minds makes them the victims of many things the world knows nothing about. But they rise above them by ignoring and forgetting them. Those who are big enough to rise above the crowd are also big enough to bear the mudslinging for which such eminence makes them the target. If you want to evolve above the dead level, you must be prepared to get your share of unjust, even false criticism. But realize that, after all, this is a compliment to you, since it is a well-known psychological fact that people never bother to knock those they consider their inferiors. Begin to school yourself not to mind mud, and especially never to throw any back. Mud that is let alone dries, turns to dust, and eventually flies back into the eyes of him who slung it. Rule 20. Be persistent, not intense, in following the rules of this lesson. Remember, it isn't occasional skirmishes, but eternal vigilance that is the price of liberty. Additional and special helps for all who are grief-stricken, remorseful, heartbroken, or wounded in spirit. If you are in one of the above groups, the first thing you must do is ask yourself this question. Do I really, deep, deep down in my soul, want to be free of my sorrow, remorse, broken heart, or wounded spirit? At first glance, you will say, 
What a foolish question. Of course I do. We will waive that answer and ask you to look again into the depths of your innermost heart. What do you find there? I ask you, dear one, in all love and sympathy. But you need reply only to yourself. I ask it because you must know the true state of your own mind and be honest with yourself if you desire to overcome the grief that is hurting you. It is a fact well known to all psychologists that sorrow sufferers are of two classes, those who long to rise above the burden that bears them down and those who secretly, subconsciously, and often unconsciously want to keep it. One of the most famous neurologists of America recently stated, the three main classes of destructive moods are harboring the grudge, dwelling on the past, and playing the martyr. To recognize that you are indulging in the first two is hard enough, but to admit, even to yourself, that you have been getting a good deal of subconscious pleasure out of your own martyrdom is pretty difficult unless you are an unusually big soul. Arnold Bennett says, Grief and remorse are two states of mind which feed on the past instead of on the present. Remorse, which is not the same thing as repentance, serves no purpose that I have been able to discover. What one has done, one has done, and there's an end of it. As a great prelate unforgettably said, things are what they are, and the consequences of them will be what they will. Why then attempt to deceive ourselves into feeling that remorse for wickedness is a useful or praiseworthy exercise? Much better to forget. Bennett goes on to say, as a matter of fact, people indulge in remorse. It is a somewhat vicious form of spiritual pleasure. Grief, of course, is different and must be handled with delicate consideration. Nevertheless, I see, as one does see, men and women dedicating existence to sorrow for the loss of a beloved creature. To my idea, that man or woman is not honoring, but dishonoring the memory of the departed. Society suffers, the individual suffers, and no earthly or heavenly good is achieved. Grief is of the past. It mars the present. It is often, though not always, a form of self-indulgence, and it ought to be bridled much more than it often is. The human heart is so large that mere remembrance should not be allowed to tyrannize over every part of it. To me, this seems a little harsh. All grief is not selfish, though it is self-centered more than we ourselves realize. I have seen what passed for unselfish sorrow, but which was, in reality, the last word in selfishness. One woman particularly comes to mind in this connection. She seemed unable, after years of widowhood, to give her mind to anything other than her loss. Her loss was always on her tongue and in her thoughts. The loss of her happiness, her home, her husband, her future, the weight of her loneliness, her unhappiness, with never a word about the one who had lost his all. She even went so far as to criticize him occasionally. Grieving for her lost husband, everyone said, but actually... She was grieving exclusively over herself. Another striking case came under my observation. Elderly parents who had married late in life and lost their only child, a bright, beautiful girl of 10. They talked of her uninterruptedly to the days of their own deaths 15 years later, 
But did I hear them refer to the tragedy of the child who had given up life at its morning? What she might have been, what she might have done, what she had missed was never mentioned. What they had missed in not having her with them in their old age. How lonely the twilight of their old age was without her. How they had been compelled to forego the comfort and cheer and love her young life could have brought into their own dreary ones. This was the burden of all their laments. Yet they were quite innocent, as doubtless all are in such instances. It is well for us to take stock of our own destructive moods if we wish to be rid of them. By being honest with ourselves, we can often save time and trouble by attacking them at their source. By recognizing and going after the cause, we can eliminate the effect. But if you are one who secretly enjoys his grief or any other destructive mood, and if you wish to continue that kind of perverted pleasure, nothing and nobody in heaven or earth can cure you. To help you, we must have your earnest cooperation. Without it, even God will not help you, for he helps only those who help themselves. Many prefer to pity themselves. If there is one type of all others farthest removed from him, it must be the self-pityer. People who pity themselves never get pity even from their fellow men. They supply their own so abundantly, everyone feels they do not need any more. On the other hand, if you truly desire to rise above your sorrow and will persistently avail yourself of the help suggested in this lesson, you can still find life a beautiful and wonderful thing. If you have lost a loved one by death, Help number one, if you are one of those extremely unselfish souls who suffer intensely whenever those you love are unhappy, the death of a loved one is likely to cause you the deepest suffering the human soul can know. You will tend to forget your duty to yourself, the duty to be a strong soul. Despairing over what your beloved has lost, you may thus deeply harm another of God's creatures, yourself. Remember, you do not belong to yourself, but to him. To make of yourself the highest type of human being, to build the finest character, these are duties you owe to the power that created you, and you can never do it save by courage. Help number two. Try to realize that whatever power gave life has a right to take it away. If this seems impossible because you are not religious-minded, Ask your scientific mind this question. Could the power which rules the universe, which operates upon everything from the tiniest atom to billions of constellations, in accordance with undeviating law, alter its laws for me? And if so, what assurance have I that it would not do so for others equally unworthy? Such a power would forfeit your respect instantly and deserve to. Such a power as that would not be capable of creating a universe. All would be chaos, where now all is order, a condition that ultimately convinces all, whether they will or not, that there is a power somewhere back of it all, and that that power knows its business. You may say that since God permitted this tragedy to come to you, you get no comfort from him in your grief that it is impossible for you to trust him anymore. 
Yet every death occurs because of the violation of a natural, immutable, eternal law or laws. If you will look at it impersonally for a moment, you will see that just as you cannot trust an earthly parent who is partial to you, since you know not what instant he may be partial to others and against you, you could not trust a God who would alter his great laws of life and death to please you. And if you will look one more moment with your reason instead of your poor broken heart, you will see that it is precisely this eternal immutability of law, even to those governing the physical body, which proves that there is a just power, an impartial tribunal somewhere. This realization, as in the case of an earthly parent, commands more admiration, love, and trust in the final analysis than any degree of partiality could ever do. Help number three. In view of the above, then, try to realize that though you may not see it, though all appears disastrous, there is a divine reason back of the event that grieves you. Do not lay waste your energies or rack your little human brain demanding to know what that reason is. Seek to know. Search diligently if you wish to. Only remember you cannot understand anything or anybody so long as resentment, distrust, or rebellion against that thing or person fills your heart. At the same time, do not try to compel yourself to believe anything antagonistic to your reason. Such a course complicates matters for you. If you cannot formulate your belief at this trying time, if, despite all you can do, you find no answer to your questions, rest a while from your labors. The full why and wherefore of life and death are not yet known to us. Someday, they may be. Meanwhile, remember that the universe got on beautifully millions of years before we and our loved ones lived, and will do so millions of eons after we have passed on, utterly regardless of what we believe or refuse to believe. The most we can do here and now, as well as for eternity, is to face the great mystery of death as we now face the equally great mystery of life, with courage, not cowardice, with heads up, not down, with hearts as brave as we can make them, and without whining. If we will, we can make of our greatest sorrows the most powerful aids to the highest human achievement, the building of a strong and beautiful character. If you cannot believe in the survival of your beloved in any realm, know that part of him still lives right here so long as you love him. Carlyle said, to live in hearts we leave behind is not to die. Help number four. If you have lost one you loved and who loved you, though you may never make for him any of the sweet personal sacrifices your heart would now delight in, yet you can still perform for him three sublime services. First, by relinquishing him to the powers which created him, that he may go on if further development awaits him without earthly shackles. Second, by being as happy as possible. What a false loyalty it is that leads us to mourn, to keep ourselves miserable, to ruin our health, and lead a crushed existence for the sake of one who loved us. A glimpse of your own heart will tell you so. 
If you had been taken first, would you wish him whom loved you never to be happy again? The one thing you would ask if you could would be that he get and keep and cling to all the joy and peace he could find. And whosoever loved you would say the same, could he speak. They may know, those who have gone on ahead, just how we are feeling. And they may not. If they do, your continued suffering here may be causing far greater suffering over there. But if they do not, is it not at least as disloyal to encourage your grief as to violate the wishes of an earthly loved one when his back is turned? The greatest gift you may lay upon the altar of your love is to try to be worthy of him, of the sweet experiences you shared, of your common happiness. By the sacredness of all you meant to each other, you become a part of each other. Part of you has gone with him to that beautiful isle of somewhere, and part of him remained behind with you. It lives on in you. It can never die so long as you are alive. To think of this as your talisman, to make a shrine for it in your heart, and strive every day so to live as to dignify rather than crucify it, is the highest form of loyalty and the hardest. If you suffer from remorse. Remorse is based in self-criticism and often leads to self-loathing. It is a dangerous and evil mood for two reasons. First, because it is based in the false hypothesis that we are degraded or hopeless for having done certain things. Help number one. No person is hopeless who wishes to be better, and none degraded who truly regrets his mistakes. The fact that you are filled with remorse proves you are above the average rather than below it, for the average person feels little to no remorse for his unworthy deeds. Help number two. To know how you compare with the average, and especially to test the degree of your own evolution, note how soon afterward your remorse or regret for a thing begins to appear. The highly evolved soul regrets his wrongdoing almost immediately, while the low-natured may commit murder and never feel a pang of remorse. All kinds and types of soul development lie between these extremes. Help number three. Always remember that whereas the coming of remorse is proof of your natural goodness, the harboring of it is certain proof of weakness. While being sorry, don't forget to be strong and put remorse out of your heart. Help number four. The worse your past acts, the more essential it is that your future ones be good and beautiful. Substitute self-confidence for self-criticism if you would atone. You can instantly acquire the foundation of true self-faith if you will accept the fact that only fine souls are capable of the remorse you are now suffering. If your heart is broken, though you hunted the world over, it is probable you couldn't find one adult person who had not, at some time or other, had his heart broken. It is sure to happen sooner or later to those who are now children. Someday each of us knows what heartbreak is. It is one of the experiences life has up her sleeve for every one of us. No one is spared. No one is immune. 
I am thinking now of the heartbreak that comes from being disappointed in love. This is the heartbreak hardest of all to bear because of its peculiarly poignant nature and because it is the kind about which we can say and do the least. It is usually impossible to confide it to others. Therefore, we cannot seek the balm of sympathy so helpful in times of other sorrow. Because you will necessarily be deprived of ordinary help from other sources in this hour of this greatest of all heartaches, I have compiled here the suggestions most helpful to me and to the thousands of others who have acted upon them. Heartbreak is an experience difficult to be prepared against. But if you will study these helps, it cannot take you entirely unawares, nor find you quite helpless. Help number one. Admit the truth to yourself. Even though it seems to fairly kill you, gather up every scrap of courage and honesty you possess and say to yourself in so many words, he does not love me. I love him, but he does not love me. Do not lengthen the days of your suffering and postpone your recovery by seeking for proofs of his love once he has told you or shown you conclusively that he does not care for you. You will recall past endearments, which, your bleeding heart tells you, could not have been based in other than eternal love, or present courtesies, actuated only by his pity or sympathy for you, will cause hope to rise again. Do not be deceived by them. Remember, truth is greater than all else in the world. Cling to it. It will sustain you in most unexpected ways, if you will. Help number two. Call forth your pride. Facing the truth and respecting yourself, these are the two primary essentials to the solution of your problem. If you do not call upon your pride, you are going to make advances that will humiliate you far more than the loss of love can ever do. We can live without this person's love and still hold our heads high, but without our own self-respect, we are broken. Help number three. Learn to use, to capitalize, to profit by the knowledge your heartbreaking experience brought you. Look for it till you find it. It is there. And let it save you from making the same kind of mistake again. Someone said, if a man deceives me once, he is dishonest. If he deceives me twice, I am a fool. Think how lucky you are to have discovered the kind of person you were dealing with in time to prevent his hurting you or your future any further. Help number four, do not make the mistake of refusing to love others for fear of being mistaken in them. It is a thousand times better to love and be jilted than go through life one of those hold-offish, non-committal people who accept everybody with mental reservations. It is not how much we have been loved, but how much we have loved that makes us great. As proof of this, remind yourself that no man or woman ever rose above mediocrity, ever attained fame, a great personality, or a beautiful, satisfying love who did not first pass through fire. Something is forever left out of him who has not known the Gethsemane of a vain love. Something of God enters into him who meets it in the right way.